Hi, welcome to our Read Aloud Book Club Double Date with Rose, uh, story by Rosamond Dujard. And tonight we have a special episode for you um, because we've invited my other darling child, Chris, who also serves as our producer, to join us in this conversation because it's been um, a lot about our family. So um, Chris had some thoughts as he's been listening to it and some questions, and we just thought it might be fun to do a little, a little interlude with Chris. So welcome, Chris. Hello. Woo. Thank you. <laughs> Hello. Yeah. I feel Ants. welcomed. <laughs> and I mean, I feel like I've been a part of this the whole time anyway, because I've been listening to all of the readings and discussions. Yeah, our first yeah. listener. He's our first listener every time. Yeah. Cool. To, be fair, to be fair, we talk to Chris every week because he's produ- helping us produce this. <laughs> so he has been here the whole time. It's just the man behind the curtain. Yes, exactly. So yeah, so I'm just dying of curiosity. Actually, Chris, what what things have you been thinking as you've been listening to all this? I have written down a lot of notes. Um, oh, cool. There was, the, there was that little conversation we had about like, um, like the bricklaying, like why... Why did grandpa choose to be a bricklayer? Forgetting where I right. thought of that. Well, this was like, that was in an early episode where Carol and I were talking about um, my mom and dad, where um, uh, my father decided to, uh, some, he, he was, um, he had kind of gone to a little bit of college and he had a sort of a professional job when he, when he married my mom. And so she was all geared up to be married to a professional man with a suit and tie who went to an office every day. Right. Um, right. But then he comes home one day and he says, he's, he's now switching to being a bricklayer to work with his father, who was also a bricklayer at this, um, you know, bricklaying establishment, Crouch, Crouch Walker, I think it was called. And of course she went into a tailspin. And so I've been trying to piece together over the years why he would do such a thing. You know, why would he make such a decision? You know, why would he take such a, such a leap? And it, it, it kind of came out in his papers at the end of his life um, when, you know, after he was gone and we were going through all his things that I, I realized the kind of a key thing which about that era. He had been in the service during the Korean War. I don't think he, he didn't fight anywhere, but he was, you know, in the army. And when he left the army, you had a choice of either, or I guess when you signed up, you had a choice either of just being in the army for four years and then getting out or being in the army for two years and then being in the reserves for five years or something like that. However it panned out, he took the choice to be in the reserves for five years afterward. And that, that gave him a little um, income, actually. There was a, there was a, you know, some sort of stipend or, or salary or wage or whatever associated with that. So he had money coming in that was important, I guess, to their well-being as a young family. I'm not even sure mom knew any of this, you know, like how much she was even informed about the financial situation. But his job as a, as a fire investigator, he was going all around. This was his, quote, office job. He was still going all around, traveling around, looking at places and evaluating them from a fire safety point of view. Um, that job, I guess, didn't, didn't pay enough that he felt to be able to raise a family. And mom had already had one child and she was pregnant with the second child when his reserves money was going to end. The five years was now up. And so he needed to make up that income. And I think he just made a very calculated decision that he could literally make more per hour as a bricklayer than he was as this fire person. Although the the fire person job had more potential for growth, I guess, probably into like management or whatever. So yeah, it was kind of a shocking decision and it turned her, um, it just made her very, very bitter that she was now suddenly in a different class. I mean, she was very class conscious, I think mom was. And uh, um, it did not make for a lot of pleasant uh, dinner conversations. <laughs> I wasn't there yet. This happened long before I came around. How did, um, how did, uh- grandma's um dad um die oh I, you know we don't, we don't actually know because grand great your great grandma split from him when my mom was about five four or five and they they were in they were living in california and grandma took the kids and went back to chicago and moved in with her spinster sisters you know so I mom see. and uncle Ron were sort of, so 
she just literally never heard from her dad again, ever. She never had any contact with him whatsoever. And years and years and years later, she tracked him down through like, you know, DNA research online or something. Somehow she managed to find that she has a half sister, you know, and she discovered that he was, he had passed on, but it, it was not, he, so he'd had another family and, and all this, but um, she never knew any of them. Is that, huh. is that why you're asking? What, what did you? Yeah, it was in my notes here. You were talking mm-hmm. about his um, grandma like moved around the country, mm-hmm. right? She like moved moved across country, kind of like uh, us, mm-hmm. like we did. Yeah. So I was wondering like how that happened. Like, yeah, and because you were you were. I remember in the discussion you were just talking about some stuff, and like you mentioned it, and so I put down a note. It's like how did he? How did he die? How did he die? Yeah. So he was, I mean, it was years and years later. It was. I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. He was, um, um, -hmm. we didn't, we never got the full story from grandma, my grandma, not your grandma, my grandma, your great grandma, never, never, we never even literally knew like the year she was born, (laughs) you know, like how old she was when she died or anything like that. Like she, she just was super like secretive about a lot of stuff. And, and that was kind of a, I mean, I don't know how much, that is like that now where families are really keep secrets. But I personally, I mean, as you guys know, I'm kind of allergic to secrets. I kind of let it all hang out, you know, <laughs> so maybe right. faulted on the other yeah. side, you know, but um, yeah, it always kind of irked me that, that they weren't just more upfront about just what had happened, you know, like people were doing their best. What did they do? And there was a lot of shame, I think, you know, associated with it. So. And a different like culture too, right? They're like, mm-hmm. One thing I'm really getting from this story is um, the the status of women mm. at this time was very different from now. Mm. Uh, just in like how it was pretty, it was just normal for women to be submissive mm. and to know their place really, and like and not question authority in mm. any way. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the, the whole thing about. Um, is it Penny or is it Pam? It, the Penny is the more social one. No, Pam is the more social one. Pam is the more social one. Where mm-hmm. Pam is is always working, guys. Like, right. Uh, like doing the long con on <laughs> all of these men, and that was just how it was done back then. Because well, I think you're you're pointing out in some respects that there's there weren't a lot of options, you know. True. The options were pretty right. pretty limited for women. So you had to work your deal. So this is why it was so violently disappointing to my mother to have, I mean, her option was she, she wanted a stable home for her children and she wanted to be married to a professional man. And so she married, she'd married exactly what she like thought would be best for us, her kids, even though we weren't there yet, she was still kind of planning for that. And then to have him turn around and completely change the status of the whole family, you know, um, and she was helpless, you know, she couldn't do a thing about it. I mean, she wasn't the kind of person that was going to pick up and leave or anything. That's not who she was. So, um, how, she just, how old, how old was, uh, grandpa when he made that decision? Do you know? Well, let's see. So my brother, Steve was born in 1956. Yeah. Gene was 54, 56. So grandpa was born in 29. So was he 25? He's 25. He's 25 when he made the decision that to right. make more money as a bricklayer because he was no longer getting money from the army reserves. Yeah. That seems like the right time to do that. <laughs> and Grammy was what? How old was Grammy? Well, she should have, she, well, if he, he could, he had to be a little older than that because they got married. He was 25. So I think she was, well, again, remember the, one of the big family secrets, which I won't go into detail with here, but we weren't entirely clear on the date they got married. I don't know if I've talked about this in this podcast. The date was fudged a little bit for whatever reason. So um, these are not your secrets, so you can't let them all hang out. You know? <laughs> I can't let them all hang out. I know exactly. Um, so I think, let's see, if she was born in 33, they were married in, she graduated high school in 51. And so this would have been 56. So maybe she, and he was five years older than her. Do the math. I'm sucky at the she's math. 20. <laughs> she's 20 when they got married. I see. So she's like 23 when he makes a big decision that ruins her dreams of being uh, right. a businessman's so wife. 
Right. So yeah. he's probably like 28, maybe. But yeah, still yeah. the same. Right in that, right in that, that, right in that sweet spot of the 20s, you know. Mm-hmm. And what was the job that he had where he was going around, um, at, like looking at the like fire safety or something? Or like, yeah, it's really. It's like it, it, that was a really was cool that job for the reserves. No, that was that was his job job that he had. It wasn't it wasn't associated with the army. Um, he, you know, I don't I don't know the whole story about that, but there's actually a, he actually made a movie about. Oh, like yeah. Putting out fires. Right. About this, this movie where he's like standing in front of this burning building or whatever and, and talking about fire safety. So it was this thing where you go. It's, it's an inspection job. It's an inspector job. So he was working somehow for the fire safety organization, whatever that is. And he'd go around. Um, Illinois and check people's fire safety for people for places that were mandated to be a certain way. Right. So I think he was going around like ensuring that people were obeying the law, so to speak. So um, yeah, that was a cool job. He got to, he actually, he had a plane, you know, like he was flying a plane to get places. Like he would hop in his own plane and fly down to, you know, parts in Illinois, they had to go inspect places, you know, like so what was he thinking? <laughs> like, I know. <laughs> like, um, I'm gonna give well, up flying a plane to Brickley. Well, here's the other thing that I, I actually just saw this as a meme or something, um, where there boomers are more and more claiming, I guess this is a very general comment. There's a claim that a lot of boomers had lead po- poisoning, right? right. In their well, system, no, yeah. right? That's in, in your and grandpa, my dad would talk about that a lot, actually. He 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 feels he he would say he had little lead soldiers uh, toys when he was growing up and he would chew on them right mm-hmm. and and this is apparently this is what he told me i actually don't know if any of this is actually true this is just what he told me which is that sometimes this particular you know poison will sit in your system for a while and not really activate until you're in your 20s and then it starts to make it very hard you know you you begin to lose some cognitive abilities and he he talked about him doing that, like having a very hard time in college. He couldn't remember this. He'd read it and he couldn't remember it. And then also in this professional situation, I think he probably had some fears that he wasn't going to be able to cut it in a job that, that required cognitive abilities that he felt he was losing. Like he would, and I know this about him, he would read things over and over and he wouldn't, he'd enjoy it while he was reading it, but he wouldn't retain it, you know, like some history book or whatever. So so I think in some respects too, he was trying to, okay, I need to get a job where I'm not having to rely on my cognitive abilities, but this was all stuff that he, I don't think he talked to mom about, you know, he didn't tell her anything about this. He didn't like, you know, can you imagine? Yeah, it, it seems like there is a lot of uh, communication problems. <laughs> but like, like as you say, I... it's pretty, it was standard for the time. And there was a lot of not talking about stuff back then you know right and probably you know if if it was true the lead poisoning was a thing then it would have been really detrimental to any communication Mm, his part too like he probably couldn't express what was wrong Mm. or you know because he didn't know right yeah because i think that i think his theories about the lead poisoning he developed like in his 60s you know like he read something about it and he goes whoa i think that's what was going on but you know like he's putting it all together and he you know, just a interesting time. A, a, yeah, yeah. Interesting about him, though, he 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 was a, a person who kind of went with the flow. You know, he didn't like he didn't spend a lot of time feeling sorry for himself or any of that. You know, he's just like, OK, this is the situation. Now I'm going to do this then and I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to still, you know, raise my family and fulfill all his obligations, which he did. So I think he probably never really understood why mom got so upset when he still literally did everything that he said he was going to do. He sent us all to college or, you know, whatever we wanted to do in our adult life. And he, you know, we just didn't have, you know, mom wasn't able to run around. I I don't even know how her life would have been that much different because she was an introvert anyway. You know, why would she want to go hang out with a bunch of successful professional people? It's like, it's not like she would go out country clubbing, you know, maybe, maybe it was something of like, just uh, how she looked, you know, image. Mm-hmm. And like, like face, you know, like yeah. having saving face and being, uh, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. being high status. Well, I mean, and all of this is interpretation, you know, like, mm-hmm. it's not like Grammy was ever like, so this is why I am bothered. 
<laughs> like, right. I mean, she, she wasn't like, like she wasn't sharing the things that were irritating her with the world. Yeah. You know? And I couldn't, I can't even imagine Grammy being irritated. Oh, wow. Like either, like she was always so happy with mm. when, when I was around her. She loved you well, grandkids, that- man. You guys got the cream, the cream moments. You got the best, the best of her, hmm. which is good, I guess. And it was just impossible for me to uh, um, like, uh, like see her any other way, really. That's fascinating. Because we, the, us kids, we remember her as angry all the time. Oof. You know. Isn't that funny? Oh. Ha ha ha. Huh. <laughs> so funny. LOL. Hilarious. <laughs> okay. Well, my next note that I have here is I remember you, Carrie, talking about how you got lost in school all the time. It had, yeah, had boys help you find places or like people, like I helped girls find their way in high school all the time. Ah. Like at the beginning of the year, like every year I was helping hmm. um, girls find their way. <laughs> yeah. Because I was like, who does that? Right. And but yeah, Carrie, you right. said you did do that. You asked people for help. Is that right? Are we getting this right? Me? Yeah. yeah. What happened? What? <laughs> would you would you ask uh, people in, in like high school for help directions or like getting to a class or something if you didn't know? Oh yeah. uh did I do that in high school? I thought when you said you, I thought you were referencing mom, but I see. Um I yeah, I think I did. I sort of have this thing I've kind of done my whole life, which is that I'll just mumble that I'm lost into the ether. Like it, I, I noticed myself doing it in New York most because there's like always people around and you're just like, where is the Empire State Building? And somebody will just be like, it's that way. You know, it's like, it's just yeah. sort of a, but I, didn't I do it. yeah, I, I don't, I don't think I was doing it. I didn't do much. Well, I don't think I did much as tactically sophisticated as Pam, um, mm-hmm. but I did believe that I was supposed to manipulate some guy into liking me and that it was like some kind of um, marker of like how successful I was as a woman to be able to do that or how many guys I could I could get to like me, you know, but yeah. then I also just like wanted to get in college and did a lot of that instead. So I sort of just, just figured I would be good at being a woman later, you know? (laughs) So like, where did you, where do you feel that you got that impression? Um, I mean, uh, well, Carrie, no, Carrie, I'm asking Carrie this, like, where where did she get the impression that the more the merrier as far as men you could manipulate and stuff? You know, there's just like, I think it was just, there's a swath of places that, that talk about this. They're like the most beautiful girl in the room. All the guys looked at her or Mm. you read a story like this. And like, Pam's got two dudes who are interested or it's not, it's not the world of like, like, as you study intimacy, you Mm. don't end up with like swaths of people are who you want to be intimate with. Like the more you study actual, like satisfying, like, where satisfying is like the release of oxytocin and serotonin and stuff like that. Like that stuff doesn't come from uh, the popularity game, right? Like that comes from like getting really close to people you really trust who make you feel like your time on the planet is meaningful, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they're actually like completely different games, right? Like one game is like you walk into a room and you control all the attention. And the other game is like actually falling in some kind of deep love you know and like building rapport Mm -hmm. um i don't know if that answered the question but there you go i just i just i just was on the edge of my seat hoping you didn't say i got it from you mom (laughs) oh that's all i was hoping no i i don't think so i don't think so i mean who knows it's it's not like like it's all one and like it's an unconscious thing you know, like it's hard to know literally where right, you because get any one thing from. Well, but. yeah, because and me like as the sandwich between my mom and you, Carol, when you were like in high school, I was, you know, I've referred to in other conversations, you know, as a child of the 70s, you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. You know, that was kind of my theme song. And mm-hmm. so, yes, I would, you know, I was 
delighted to get attention from a whole bunch of different people and to give attention to a whole bunch of different people and to be like just always pinging. I was always pinging, but it didn't have any kind of, I mean, I was never aware of like manipulating people. I was trying to do this by just being genuinely friendly and genuinely interested and genuinely, you know, aren't I fun, you know, like, so, you know, it's just, some of this kind of went right over my head. I think sexual politics and stuff went right over my head. I think because I was just too here's, just upfront with my desires. Thing. I'll say like one more thing on this, and then uh, and then give it back to Chris. Right. Um, but like a lot of times, loving oneself and accepting love from others can be really challenging if you aren't being manipulative because. You have to live in that space where you don't necessarily know why somebody genuinely loves you, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're being manipulative and you're targeting people who can be manipulated, it you understand what's happening there because you're pulling strings and you're making, you're exchanging, you know? So it's mm -hmm. like, you don't have to live in the space where you're like, I, I guess this person is just going to love me for who I am. Instead, you're like, they love me because... I wear this kind of makeup and I know how to dress and I know what to do when we walk into a room and everybody's impressed. And that's how I know that they're not going anywhere. You know, like, wow, it, it's got a, it's got a certain kind of security to it that makes you just feel it's definitely, you know, the, the catch all is you're in, you feel like you have more control, <laughs> but like, what does that actually mean? It means that, you know, you have an idea of like what you did to establish your environment with these people. So you feel safe. Right. Hmm. But like there's the other beautiful way where you're just yourself and it turns out that people all around you really are loving. It might not be the people you could manipulate. It's probably mm. a different kind of person, but like you can also be loved just you being you, you know? Okay. The mm. end. Thank you, Chris. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. That was one of my notes. <laughs> no, what was it? Was it? What, uh, help, uh, well, like, I guess in a way it kind of was helping girls find their way in in high school is like a whole that's the whole theme of it we go more meta on mm. it mm. if it's like you know like being expected to manipulate mm. to get your way mm. mm. and that's almost okay it's, it's understandable it's natural you know it's admired right. even it's yeah. like a skill that people admire like wow like pam's so good at like working the room you know what i mean Hmm. like you get praise well, it all boils down to like balance right you know like there are some people who uh like will use it as a weapon you know to get their way in everything and there's other people who will use it for good and like include a group of people together you know manipulating to help rather than manipulate to uh, self-serve you know so it's a it is a tool but it's just depending on the person whether or not it's it's good or bad interesting cool yeah so cool did you have others what, is, what else do you have chris um where there was the you were talking about yeah there's this one part where you were talking about like behavior, like the behaviors that you have before puberty, um, like become a blueprint of like how you're going to act as an adult, mm. you know, it's like, a, um, and it's really hard to change that type of thing because it's like, it's what you think, you think you are this way forever. You know, like if you have a certain behavior or opinion as a kid it's really hard to like change that when you're hmm. older but um i wrote down that it's um it's not impossible to change but as long as you can acknowledge that it's it's like unhealthy or hmm. unproductive you can get your brain to like agree to um think about it differently yeah. and then eventually it like you have to like catch your thoughts like over and over again until it becomes second nature and then yeah you don't really have to think about it anymore but it's a change you change mm -hmm. 
yeah that's neuroplasticity because, um, yeah that's uh that stuff is coming from uh early childhood development stuff and uh your brain just doesn't have its fully functioning it just takes maturity you have to like keep your brain develops throughout your adolescence like childhood and adolescence and the prefrontal cortex isn't there i I mean like i hope i'm getting this right i think i am Mm. getting this right the prefrontal cortex is just not like 100 percent there you're still working on like kind of your muscle your like deeper older parts of your brain right the reptile brain yeah like your amygdala is a big part of that there's like it's just everything that isn't the high functioning logical stuff you know like the linguistics it's all spatial and visual and rhythm it's just it's just your habitual life is built on being able to move through space movement based parts of your brain versus your like verbal parts of your brain and like and what happens is a lot of habits get built into your muscle memory before you even have the verbal capacity, like the internal verbal capacity to make a conscious choice and be like, oh, I would like this habit to form versus this one. But a lot of habits form before you have that. Like that's at about at about seven, you start to build your like ability to make a conscious choice. And then puberty hits and you're flooded with hormones. And then by the time you're 20, 25, you've got a lot of history built into your muscle memory, but now you finally have a fully developed prefrontal cortex and you can start making decisions. So it's like a universal truth of being human that like at around 20 to 25, there's this moment of like, oh my goodness, (laughs) (laughs) why are these my habits? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, isn't that when your brain uh, fully develops is when you're 25, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and that's the part of the brain that is officially, finally at your disposal, you know? Mm -hmm. And that even in and of itself is like an ability that you have to like want, like being able to see yourself in a like object, like, like, uh, what do you call it? Like intentional. Like, yeah, intentional or like um like a third person unbiased in, in like personal well objective yeah. you were saying you're yeah. objective yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. even though objective um, is not possible you can't see yourself right. objectively it's still like in an effort to you know right right yeah um but like even being able to acknowledge something isn't working is like huge for the mm-hmm. brain because mm-hmm. a lot of the times when you have a bad habit you like you can't you just you're not even like able to see it as something bad because you're just so like uh, lost in it, mm-hmm. you know. And it's uh, kind addiction, of is a, addiction is a great example because yeah, yeah. like yeah. You, you you don't even think about it. You don't think about it being bad. You just think about the next the next high, and that's it. Well, it's kind of it's because it's kind of your comfort zone, right? You sort of right, you know, it's, you're and comfortable there because you're used to it. And when you're out of that comfort zone, it's like all you can do to, to like function. Yeah. I just mm-hmm. read, I just finished a book called Good Habits, Bad Habits. And it's by Wendy Wood. And mm-hmm. like the whole, the whole book is just the science of crafting your habits. Like now that you've got this prefrontal cortex and you can make choices, a lot of habitual like a lot of like who we all want to be like who we wish we were we try to use willpower to do it and it like burns us out and really the more um effective approach is to acknowledge that most of who you are is habitual and the way to adjust it is to play with your habitual cues and your your environment to like try to help set you up for success more and more that is so that it takes less and less willpower and then you have more and more success and then you build confidence and it just kind of like snowballs once you like get this once you start to externalize whose fault it is that you are who you are you know because a, a lot of who we are is is in response to context it's not really like our fault you know mm-hmm. yeah 
Yeah. It sounds like a lot of, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I'm just going to throw in, that sounds like cognitive behavioral conditioning, you know, like, yeah, Mm -hmm. some of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was just going to say that a lot of that too is like um, um, fight or flight in a, in a way, you know, like mm-hmm. things that you dealt with as a kid or maybe not dealt with as a kid, you like put up defenses and conditionings to like never have to feel that mm-hmm. bad way again. Yeah. Coping, yeah. coping or, mechanisms. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, or even like, and sometimes it's unhealthy, you know, finding these defense mechanisms and having like negative associations to things that aren't even that bad, but mm. you, you kind of like assume it's going to be bad. So you kind of like, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. And then, well I, suppose, well, I suppose that's kind of the process. When, right. And that's, that's kind of the process when you hit age 25 and you're saying like, Chris, you're saying maybe objective is too like cut and drive a word, but at least you're able to step out of yourself a little bit and look and go, oh, okay. I had a coping mechanism. I've used this whole time. It no longer serves me. You know, that's that moment where you can finally say it helped me all those years for whatever reason, but now it's time to change it. You know, right. um, that's a, that's a big step in maturity. I think for anybody, you know, to reach that moment where, you know, these things that we cling to. And I, I'm, honestly, I think a lot of people don't, don't ever get past it. You know, they hang on to it. Ooh, it's really hard because your muscle memory says, uh, don't forget that you could die if you mm. <laughs> like, that's what it says. It's like, you yep. could die if you play with this, you know, mm. and like Gosh, you have yeah. to spend a lot of energy reminding your, your unconscious brain, which is just like the piece of you that is muscle memory and automatic and habitual you have to keep reminding it that you are currently safe. You're like, listen, I wouldn't be talking about this right now, unconscious mind, if we were not currently safe enough to talk about it. And it's hard yeah. work. It's hard Can I tell you a story? Can I tell you a little story? This happened least lately, and I'm almost 60 years old. This is the thing, which is John just, he just asked me, how was your day? How's your day? How was your day today? And I, and I, you know, after like, I mean, I instantly went to my day's fine. How was yours? Just because, and, and I, I don't know why I did that. And then we went to couples therapy and we were talking about this. Somehow it came up and I'm like, I have this, this knee jerk belief that information about me is not interesting to anybody else. You know, it's just not interesting. So this person is not really, anyone who's asking me how I'm doing is not really asking me how am I doing? They really want me to ask them how they're doing. So <laughs> I just, I just bat that right back. I just, you know, I just lob that right back with the tennis racket, boom, you know, serve it right back to their side of the court. And when in fact, what's really going on with John was he noticed that I was a little bit stressed. Like he's, he's very intuitive. So I don't think this was even conscious on his part, but he can see when I'm a little, he can tell when I, he's sensitive, right? So he can tell when I'm a little bit off. And so the, how was your day question for him is an invitation to unburden a little bit in his direction. You know, he, he's, he's, he would welcome that because then he feels closer to me. Right. And, um, and in, in the session with the, with the therapist, when he's saying, he's explaining to me, that's what's happening here. John wants to know about your day. He wants to know how you're feeling. I literally like started crying because I have such a huge block about that. And that goes all the way back to being five years old. Right. I mean, that's just, it's just, so this is the thing, these things that are so like embedded in us and so ingrained, you know, and it takes, like you say, you know, being in a com- place of complete safety for it even to ever come up, you know, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, it was kind of surreal. And I'm like, why am I still dealing with shit like this when I'm almost 60 years old? You know, but it also Man. like, it's a, it's a, it's like a, a product of like how well you um like repressed mm-hmm. stuff too and like some people are like um masters at not dealing with things right but that's not healthy that's just not right. healthy yeah yeah it's not healthy but it might be effective you know and right like, and who's to say what healthy is really like there's this idea of like i mean healthy is what society has sorted out so far, you know, like Mm -hmm. 
it used to be considered healthy to smoke cigarettes, you know, like <laughs> it's just like, it's not like today, you know, it's not healthy, but when mm-hmm. you're five and it's, a, and the habit is establishing, it was quite healthy because it got you through whatever it was that you were right. facing off. And right. when you're five, everything is life or death because you have zero agency, you know, mm-hmm. but you have to comply, you know? Mm-hmm. And you have to figure mm-hmm. out how to do that without, um, you know, just torturing yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're surviving this this uh, universe you didn't create, you know, and you're just in it, you know. Yeah. Well, when I say healthy too, it's like what I don't want is to have resentments and neuroses just sort of festering in here because I think I I do kind of believe that that winds up having an effect on your body, you know, like yeah, like you, it you does. Right. In repression, you know, you kind of feel it in your body. So like, I, I feel like it's good that I'm working this through now while I'm still reasonably healthy, you know, in, in a physical mm-hmm. sense. And that kind of, you know, like my mom who just sort of ended up, you know, without having dealt with any of it, you know, and um, I, it's a little on my mind too, as you kids know, I do scrapbooks, right? I, I scrapbook my whole life and I just, I just finished the pages where, where mom passed on and, you know, just kind of remembering her last months you know i mean it's like a lot of what we're talking about it seems to me we're talking about gaining perspective you know which you have none of when you're very young and you get more and more of and then when you hit 25 you're suddenly able to you know when your brain gets to that point where you can have perspective outside of yourself and then you get older and you see the way life changes and stuff um i don't know where i'm going with this but it's it's, well you, you realize that you've changed too mm. like like when like when I turned 25 I really I like had to really think about my life mm. and it's not like I had to it's just I did like I just started really thinking about like who I was and who I wanted to be and also like looking back at like who I was like who I who I had been before I was 25, like my teenage years, I, you know, look, thinking about it now, I was, I was kind of mean to some people. Like I I had a really, really sarcastic mean streak with friends Mm -hmm. and stuff. And then when I turned 25, I was like, I don't like that about myself. Mm -hmm. I don't like that. I'm doing that. So I, I try to not anymore. And, um, that's funny. it's balanced. It's both of like, you know, like just remembering like interactions with people in like high school and, and outside of high school during those years, I could have been nicer to some people. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time I didn't think anything of it, but mm-hmm. then I turned 25 and all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, I feel kind of guilty about that shit. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, that's the, you know, that, that, I mean, that's as it should be, right. You, you discover mm-hmm. something and then you change, you know, I mean, the change is the, is the way to kind of rectify right. it, you know, and not like holding on to the shame either, mm-hmm. you know, like, Oh, mm-hmm. I, I feel bad about that, but not letting it consume my life. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. being like, well, I'm not like that anymore. Like I can be different now. Right. Yeah, that's the that's the secret of life there. Yeah, and that's what you use willpower for. You use hmm. willpower to start to craft the habits that you would like to see become automatic. You know, mm-hmm. uh, but doing that takes it, it. It does take the willpower and it takes energy. You know, it's like, but that's that's when you get to start saying who you think you are. You get to say how you identify. Like I don't identify as, I mean, like I've noticed a lot of habits that are in my body, but I don't know that I necessarily identify with all of them or I wouldn't be calling them slightly unhealthy. (laughs) I wouldn't be in therapy being like, listen, like I don't actually identify as somebody with these kinds of anxiety problems. You know, like I want that addressed in some way. Mm. I've noticed that my body has this, I, like, I don't know if everybody thinks of it this way. It's slightly disassociated. I know that, but like, 
but it's just like, I've noticed that there are things that like come with the package of like my personality that I don't, that don't make me feel like myself, you know? So Mm. then I go and I try and get those things addressed. It's not like there's anything wrong with me either way. It's just, I don't identify with those things. So I try to do what I can to like address it. If it turns out to be like, I mean, more often than not in, in most cases, it is an external thing or like an external thing outside of my control, like hormones or something, you know? And it's Mm -hmm. just like, oh, this is like, this is still not me. It's still context that I am wrestling with. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness Mm. is, is not that hard when you start to study how context dictates behavior, you know, like people more often than not are responding to context logically. There's like, they are not inherently like assholes, Mm. (laughs) you know? just not like a thing Mm, yeah i mean everyone's just doing their best given the data that they've been given you know they've been served up you know and like and their environment Mm -hmm. anyway Mm -hmm. penny and pam am i right (laughs) (laughs) i mean yeah that's the thing that i mean it, it does actually circle back to penny and pam because i guess it's penny is realizing that she's been kind of herded by Pam to do things and be ways that she doesn't feel comfortable with anymore. And so she decides to change and starts doing things that Pam wouldn't do or wouldn't like doing or whatever. And it like totally confuses Pam. You know, her going to the newspaper group, like, totally confused her. Yeah. Well, you're going to be bored because I would be bored if I went. So you must be bored when you go. You'll see. Mm. Like, like that attitude. And. But she loves it. I mean, also, yeah, the whole thing about Penny, like, um, being the, like, coffee runner. You know, mm-hmm. not actually getting any real work mm-hmm. in the newspaper. Yeah. But she still sticks with it. Um, hopefully she does get a better better spot. But, I mean, it's probably just like how the culture was back then, too. Where, yeah, where women, she's just, yeah, she's just yeah. the little, the, the servant or whatever, the assistant type, you know. Right. I mean, she's new on the newspaper, right? It's her first year there, and these guys have been doing it for a couple of years, maybe, you know, but they're all seniors, you know, so. Right. But yeah, it is really a total difference in, um, like, atmosphere compared, mm-hmm. like, to like, the guys compared to the girls. The like, girls are really just not, um, there's no expectation of being, uh, like uh, just like how what the job entails you know it's just like right. you're you're meant only for secretary work mm-hmm. or well, so just so just think about what it's like if you are in that context because people are all born different right so if mm-hmm. you're living in that context and you happen to be in a, a woman's body yet you want to have a leadership role and you know you have leadership qualities and there's nowhere for them to go or you're a gay person and, you know, you don't want to be, it's like, it's like this whole piece of you has to be secret, you know, um, that that's, that's the kind of frustration and, and, and whatnot that this book isn't trying to address at all, but which definitely existed back then. I mean, it wasn't like it wasn't happening. Um, it's just, uh, it's the author of a woman. Yes. It is a woman. Yeah. Yep. I'm a little, so like, yeah, she, it doesn't really seem like uh, nope. she It's not like the writing is not really like trying to say anything about that. It's, it, it seems just sort of like a, a soap, a soap opera kind of 
Well, it's funny because I think I think this was actually considered to be sort of a progressive take on how teenagers <laughs> should be, you know, like this is a, you know, a girl who isn't all concerned about clothes and makeup, you know. Ah, like, okay. So yeah, you know? I'm totally my my viewpoint is coming from a 21st century right male, like seeing this, being like, oh, this is like, you know normal right right this is like you know it's, well it's you know it even seems kind of regressive to you probably reading it going like like probably you don't know any girls that are like this at all like you're women you know your age that are that fall like so conveniently into these categories you know like oh yeah definitely not my age but back then mm-hmm. back in high school mm-hmm. there were there were a, a couple of girls that tried to be um like that they tried to fit that submissive kind of the penny version version. uh well both actually both Mm -hmm. there were some girls that were like pam where they pam's pam's kind of a queen bee in my in in yeah yeah like they purposely like made them they purposely acted stupid Mm. to Mm. like make the guys secure and also manipulate them into liking them. Yeah. And then there were other girls that were just being themselves, you know, just being themselves and like wanting to write or, mm-hmm. and like, uh, but still when it came to like um, crushes or whatever, they would be very like innocent, you know, and naive in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Hmm. Well, did you have anything else from your notes that you that you were interested in convincing about? Um, I mean, we've pretty much already been talking about it. Um, mm-hmm. Cool. Like limits set on women and how how tradition mm-hmm. was is very different from how we see it now. Mm-hmm. like the patriarchy was just traditional it was just like it was this construct that everyone agreed on and didn't really mm-hmm. even see it as the patriarchy you just saw it as like this is just reality it's the way things are yeah yeah well, and so it's good and also it's a yeah. good thing too well, so you're that, so you're a guy you're a guy would you want to go back to this kind of thing would it be easier no nah, i'd be pissed oh yeah I would hate it. Yeah. Because I would see all of these people being, I mean, I, maybe that's just my 21st century, like, mm-hmm. like mindset, but I wouldn't be comfortable with people, anyone being treated like less than just because of their gender or, mm-hmm. or skin color or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So like, mm-hmm. I don't, even though I wouldn't be treated that way because I'm a white male, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think I would be comfortable seeing people being treated like that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i yeah i would probably there's i think there's uh, like some other consequences to it too right like just because just because like status is afforded relatively to one type of person doesn't mean that that person doesn't like lose out a lot on like the ability to have like friends who are women or mm-hmm. consult right. like like you end up stuck in a room with a bunch of people who want to talk about how they're better than everyone else and you feel incredible actually I mean like this is projection I'm not I I don't know but I've definitely heard of people being like inside high status boys clubs and just feeling like incredibly isolated from the rest of the world, like really lonely, like the stakes are super high. Like these are the only five people you're allowed to like respect, you know, like, like sharing. Well, I mean, I've, I've experienced stuff like that even in, in my life, like mm-hmm. where it was just all men who were obsessed with status and um, being alpha, mm-hmm. you know, and, and dominating everyone around them and 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 that was the way it is like that's it was it was not expected but like enabled in a way 
you know, people like the, they would get a pat on the back for being the best of the best mm. and yeah, rub it in. Like they would be like, yeah, you should rub it in everyone's face. That's, that's how it is. Like you are allowed to do it that way because you are the best. So there you go. How did you, how did you function in those environments? Did you kind of go along with it or did you no, grossed out? I, I would either, I would make fun of them. <laughs> I would, I would always bring them down a notch or two. By how, like, did that, how did that play? Uh, well, it, I mean, it didn't make me like any friends, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it made me feel better, I guess. Mm. Um, but like, it was just, it was always towards like, it, it, it was mostly bullying. If I ever mm. saw like a guy bullying another guy or anyone, I would say something mm-hmm. and like start making fun of them. And like, like, what is with your need to, to, to do this? Like, why are you doing this like this? Didn't your mother teach you like <laughs> to have manners or something? Mm-hmm. I mean, it would just depend on the situation, but mm-hmm. I always, yeah, I always stuck up for the little guy. Yeah. yeah and that goes way back. I mean, I, I can remember times you doing that when you were quite young. Um, you know, it's just kind of a, kind of an instinct you had, which was always very admirable. And that's like a thing in the world today that, you know, needing people to speak up, it doesn't happen much in this book, right? Because there's not a lot of like high stakes conflict that happens and nobody's really at risk, but the, that other book that Carol has talked about a couple of times in our discussions, um, cross my heart it's called, and that's got like some like intense, like situations where these teenagers like don't speak up on behalf of somebody else who is, you know, being hurt. And, and that's like, I mean, I'm, I'm moving into a whole other realm here with our like world today, but that seems to be a, a big issue. Like we're, we're, you, we're beginning to look around and see each other. And we're noticing who doesn't say anything, you know, like when stuff is happening, like who just stays quiet or keeps their head low or whatever. And that's, I mean, it's not that that's bad or wrong because that person has to like look up for them for their own safety. They have to feel safe, but I guess that's, I'm going around a long way. It feels like, it sounds like from it's what also, you're saying, Chris, like it, you didn't necessarily feel uns- Yeah. Yeah. We have a whole system set up for people to not question, not speak up mm-hmm. or, and not like, um, like making it more convenient to uh, keep to yourself. Mm-hmm. then because there's no incentive for mm. speaking up you know there's actually uh consequences mm. you know no good deed goes unpunished <sighs> like yeah. the systems are set up to punish those who who speak up mm. so it's like it's really hard it's, it's like more than brave to speak up it's like you also have to have uh the ability to like um i guess deal with the consequences mm-hmm. you know like if you have the support structure necessary mm-hmm. to be okay with the consequences mm-hmm. like the people who go and protest i mean they're probably not thinking about if they get arrested or mm-hmm. like get processed or, or any of that because it's mm-hmm. it's all about the cause so um what is there to lose? But mm-hmm. for most people, they they don't speak up and don't protest because they wouldn't be able to deal with the fallout. Right. Well, and even with the protests, I mean, I've been to a lot of protests, but I'm not the person that has to worry about that. You know, whereas I've been to protests where the people of color at the protest were fully prepared. You know, they had phone numbers written on their arms. They're like, they, they know their rights. They're like, they're ready to get arrested, you know, in, in ways that I probably would never have to deal with, you know? Right. So, um, as a, and white, that's, a whole you know, di- that's a whole yeah. mindset. No, yeah. That's a whole, um, that's like transcending. <laughs> yeah, I know. So it's like, so what they're putting at risk, you know, so that, it, it, you know, anyway, so we've really, we've, okay. We've rattled around to quite a few topics here. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> anything, Carol, you want to add anything else or what, like what, uh, Oh, uh, do I want to, I, I guess I want to ask Chris if 
he's been enjoying his time on the podcast and like listening to the podcast. I'm just like, yeah, curious I have been, been, I have been enjoying, I enjoy the story mm-hmm. and I enjoy listening to you two discuss it. And the stuff that you talk about is, is interesting. Like there are things that you talk about that like, I didn't know. Oh yeah. Like this one little thing about like condoms and like okay. when they started like, like I looked that up and like it was 18th century hmm. was where like the first real like condoms were used. Oh, and like you were talking about like how women didn't have it, like, like abortion and, and um, birth control wasn't mm-hmm. a thing until like what the sixties or seventies or something. It was actually yeah. illegal. It was illegal to use it. If you, and if, if you were married, you had to have your husband's permission or whatever. Right. And you're like, you had, you had to be, mar- you know, all, yeah, there were all kinds of rules. It wasn't like available to just I like didn't know condoms were that old. That's pretty good. Yeah, cool. Well, it was like well, lamb. It was lamb stomach. Lamb and, well, the guts, right? The intestines. Yeah. Right? Guts. They, yeah, and, yeah. Or whatever. And they, mm. that's what people would use. Mm. Sexy. Like, like oh, yeah. Tie off the end. Yeah. So it wasn't like a hundred was less than, you know, anyway. Mm. And, and, and it's know. just crazy how like now, nowadays it's still like, entirely the woman's responsibility to, to not get pregnant mm-hmm. yeah and uh did you know that they actually did make um a birth control medication for men <laughs> I and do. they they discontinued it because they didn't like the symptoms that they got <laughs> yeah. which, which are was basically the symptoms pretty- that women get when they have their period yep and they couldn't handle it. So like they just oh, we're not gonna mass produce this now. Men don't like it. I know it's doing too hard. I can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so all that. And we're obviously still very much dealing. These issues have not gone away. And it's like, you know, people are still really convinced that one person should be able to tell another person what to do with their body and how to deal with their uterus and how to, you know, and um, it's just a kind of, and if we were born like 50, a hundred years earlier, we might be convinced of that as well. That's, what's kind of wild right. is that it was normal. It is normal. The people who think this way, think it's normal. And they hang out with people that agree that it's normal. Mm. It's just Yeah. Wild. Like the position we're in, it's like a luxury. You know, we mm. get to look back on those times and, and be like, oh, that was immoral, but it, it's a construct. You know, what we think of as moral and ethical is just something that we've all agreed to now. Right. It's, it's a choice. I'm but, reading a book now that's, that's where it's just, it's just about a collective myth that we've all agreed to, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, it, there's, it has no more reality than any other collective myth, you know, and we, we have lots of them and that's another whole topic and we could go for right. hours on that topic. Um, and, oh yeah. And it like, it stems back to the hunter gatherer mentality. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where when we first started talking about women, like manipulating men for like relationship things. And that, that stems back to the hunter gatherer too, because a woman was going to be pregnant for nine months. They needed protection. Mm-hmm. So they had to be able to get the, a man to just stay with them mm-hmm. for that period to be able to like have the safety and security for that time. Mm-hmm. And so therefore it, it like, it's the dynamic that made it easier for men to um, like, uh, you know, control what yeah, women did with their bodies because like you need my protection, so mm-hmm. you have to do it my way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't really know. I'm this the same book I just referenced. It's a it's a. I got <laughs> that from I got that from Sapiens. From the book I wrote. Sapiens, exactly. Mm-hmm. Sapiens. That's a, but there's a he's he's also got a graphic book. He's got two graphic books of the, you know, of this that I'm reading it now in detail. Maybe give it to my my great nephew. Um, mm-hmm. And talking about that, he doesn't. They don't actually know when the patriarchy started and like why it started or how it started. It just started. It's It's not every hunter gatherer group was patriarchal. Well, but it's like almost every society in humanity 
evolve that way no matter what. Like it's it's everywhere, you know, this kind of this kind of setup. So and, right, you know, yeah, we don't really that, know why. So we concrete. don't really know why. We don't really know why. It's like women banded together and you needed to have men to protect the community. But when did it turn into women became property? You know, that's like and children became property and stuff. Like when did that happen? We don't know. You know, mm-hmm. anyway. Um, yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah, very interesting. Thanks for thanks for joining us, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great. I'm glad people got to hear another voice after us, all these hours of us. There'll be hours more of us. Don't don't fret, and we'll be moving on to you know you get chapter eleven after this. Um, so yeah, thanks for thanks for listening to this special episode, and we'll see you um, at the next one. Yeah, thank you. Bye. <laughs> bye. Bye. <laughs>